Yeah, yeah, Jimmy, I know. We're on the air in 10 minutes. It's not my fault I had to get screened for COVID. Again. <sighs> she whiz. Hey, Baka. Oh, good Godzilla. Hi, Jessica. I didn't know you were on Monster Island yet. That's because I just got back. Remember how I said I was applying for jobs? Well, I got one. Oh, joy. What is it? I'm a tour guide. Oh, that's good. And my route includes K-I-J-U, so you'll get to see me every day. Last award. What was that? Uh, I, I was just wondering, how are you going to work a regular job? Because some people might know you're a superheroine and bug you about, I don't know, saving their cat from a tree or doing magic tricks. Okay, I love cats, but I'm not so easily distracted. Right. And magic tricks? Dang it, Baka, I'm a superheroine, not a stage magician. Ever heard of Zatanna? Don't get smart with me. Just saying, magical girl. You could pull a lepus bunny out of a giant hat. Anyway, Miss Perkins talked with me about keeping a low profile, and that's why I have this gorgeous purple wig. Wait, that's not your hair? <sighs> no, Baka, I'm still beautifully blonde under this. You're welcome. As I was saying, Miss Perkins met me at my new apartment here on the island and gave me this to wear while I was working to hide my identity as Crystal Lady. She says this wig was one of her favorites. Wanna know a secret? I guess? See this cute moth-shaped barrette in my hair? It's actually my transformation device. You have one of those now? Of course, every magical girl does. Alrighty then. I won't tell anyone, except maybe Jimmy. That's fine. I trust Jimmy. Especially since he told you on the air that you had to be nice to me. I may be your clone, but I'm still family. Plus, I think both my bestie Bex and our sister Sarah would beat you up if you were mean to me. And Sarah's a black belt, so... <laughs> I get it. Just word of advice as your nerdy big brother. Don't go superheroing unless you have to. Deal? Shimasu! Okay, now you go get settled in because I have a show to do. Sure thing. Oni-chan, just make sure you stop by tonight to help me move some furniture. Sure. Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 33, Submersion of Japan, featuring Adam Noyes. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Nate Marchand, the film curator here on Monster Island, and... Today will be a very interesting episode. This is a rare time where I'll be covering a movie that has no kaiju in it. And as I have been mentioning the last couple of episodes, I have a very special guest in more ways than one here with me for this movie. And that is Mr. Adam Noyes. Welcome, Adam yeah, I'm here from the board of directors. I'm here. Uh, I hear that they're implementing some stricter COVID procedures. So, uh, yeah, I'm here to check up on on this joint. 
Uh, so you're a health inspector on the side, I guess? Some people call me that. Oh, I see, I see. Jimmy, why didn't you warn me about this? You didn't know either? A likely story. Okay, yeah, I've been hearing about this, and I'm glad you got yourself what seems to be a very viable new job, side hustle. I mean, I thought you were a YouTuber and filmmaker and all that fun stuff. Well, desperate times call for some desperate measures, sir. Now, if you don't mind, I got to start looking around to make sure that you're keeping up with these COVID rules. Yeah, but what about Submersion of Japan? I thought you were coming here to talk with me about that. Oh, well, lucky you said that. I just happened to have all these notes in my pocket uh, uh, containing a bunch of stuff on Submersion of Japan. So, yeah, we can talk about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, let, let's take a little bit of a break from that because, obviously, I don't want to displease my Orwellian overlords all that much. But we do have an episode to take care of. So, thank you once again, Adam, for joining us today. Yeah. You actually told me that you were particularly excited because you don't get to talk about this movie with a whole lot of people. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's really unfortunate because I think this is a movie that deserves, if not a lot more praise, it definitely deserves a lot more attention than it gets. Oh, most definitely. I, I couldn't say, the, say that any better. For those who don't know, Submersion of Japan is a 1973 tokusatsu disaster movie. Even though this is a really long movie, the plot is actually pretty simple. It is discovered that there are tremors going on in the Japan Trench, if I remember correctly, and it is so severe that eventually, I think they said within about 10 months, it was probably a little bit of time before then, so about a year, the entirety of the Japanese islands is going to sink into the ocean. The, That's the rest, literally the movie. Yeah, there's a, a fairly large cast of characters. We follow the Japanese prime minister while he's trying to deal with the crisis, and it also affects him personally. And there's this intrepid, not quite as intrepid as Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, calm down. I know you love the submarines in this movie who's studying this whole thing, trying to figure out what's going on. And that's actually, his story is probably the one that's the most personal because he has a girlfriend that he just met. <laughs> that, yes, we will, we will get to that. Yeah. So there's all that stuff going on with that. There's this old man named Watari who is trying to figure out himself what to do because he has a lot of clout in Japanese society and politics. There's some family drama and such going on with that. It's very involved, but the basic gist is they're all trying to deal with this crisis because we suddenly have this island nation with 110 million people, which they say that a lot. Numbers are big in this movie. Yes, yeah. as they should be. Yes. And I'm glad that they made a point. That's one of the things that I love about this movie is mm -hmm. that they make a point of saying how many people are here and this is how many people we can probably save and this is how many people are probably going to die. This movie almost prides itself on being as accurate as possible with the details. Mm -hmm. Which is definitely in line with the source material because this is actually a literary adaptation. It is. It is. It apparently it was, it was written by Sakyo Komatsu, mm -hmm. who wrote this down in my note. He's basically a more philosophical Japanese Michael Crichton. Mm hmm. He had a lot of Japanese themes. You know, he was very into Japanese identity. And again, we'll probably get to that oh, later yeah. <clears throat> in a big way. But he liked writing these sci-fi or disaster novels. 
And he was a hot commodity there for a while because Toho was making a lot of kind of like Hollywood with Michael Crichton. He was Toho was making his books and the movies a whole bunch. Some titles people might be familiar with is he also wrote the book that became the movie Virus and then Sayonara Jupiter, you know, just to name a couple. Yeah, he also wrote the book version of E-Spy directed by June Fukuda, Mm -hmm. which was apparently one of Toho's first See, Toho was trying to adapt some of his movies beforehand, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that was one of them. And all of a sudden, they decided to take a risk with Submersion of Japan, specifically Toho Eizo, which I can get into a little bit later if if we need to. But Toho Mm -hmm. Eizo said, we're going to make Submersion of Japan. And because that was such a gargantuan hit, suddenly it it was kind of like Jurassic Park with Michael Crichton. Everyone wanted to start making Michael Crichton books into movies. It was that way over in Japan in the 70s and 80s. Suddenly, because Submersion of Japan was such a gargantuan hit, everyone, specifically Toho, wanted to say, let's make some more Komatsu movies. And that's why E-Spy got made was because of the massive success of Submersion of Japan. Mm -hmm. I have not read the book. I have. It was a couple years ago, but I have read the novel. Well, I I should correct that. I have read the translated novel because the original, yeah, that's a big thing because the original Japanese publication of the novel was published in two volumes that came out to about 800 pages. If you go on Amazon right now in America and you buy it, you're going to get an edition that's more like 300 pages. Really? Is it like an abridged version? Yeah, they take out most oh, of the because the the book is full of diagrams and all kinds of stuff to illustrate what he's talking about, and most of those get taken out in the, oh, that's the translation. That's fine. Oh, man. Now I don't want to get it. Now I'm worried about virus, too, because I literally have them in my Amazon cart. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you'll have something interesting to look forward to when you get back to the States. But the novel was a giant hit. It sold its first million copies in just two and a half months when it was published in March of 73. Because if I remember correctly, Komatsu had been working on this book for years, and Toho was interested in turning it into a movie before I think it even got published, which is why there was such a quick turnaround, because the book was published in March, and the movie came out in December of that year. Yeah, it took Komatsu nine years to write. He started writing it in 1964, Mm -hmm. and he did a lot of research. And apparently everybody that worked on this movie did a lot of research because... Teruyoshi Nakano boasted Mm -hmm. that he read about 70 books about earthquakes to prepare for the movie, and he became an expert. And in typical Teruyoshi Nakano fashion, I think he was over-exaggerating a little bit. Uh, Probably. (laughs) Uh, But yes, everyone really did their research in the making of not just the book, but the movie as well, and it shows. Oh yeah, most definitely. The thing that is interesting to think about with this, because this was also one of Toho's biggest hits honestly not just that year it was one of their biggest hits ever it was also one of their most expensive movies they were taking a big risk and this can kind of go into toho Azo because if people don't know toho in the 1970s japan the movie industry was in complete and total shambles it's my favorite period to research because of how crazy it is oh yeah so essentially what happened and i'm getting this from stuart galbraith and i'm getting this from the godzilla versus mechalon audio commentary he talked about (laughs) this in, in great detail So again, this was a huge undertaking for Toho for 1970s. And Toho Eizo basically carried a brunt of the costs on this movie. And Toho Eizo was a subsidiary of Toho created in 1972 to basically helm all of Toho's special effects films. The first time you see it is in Godzilla vs. Gigan. It's that blue logo that pops up after Mm -hmm. the Toho logo. Mm Mm-hmm. And according to Stuart Galbraith, this was mainly made to offset the rising costs of unions 
whether or not that's true or not is up for debate, but that's certainly what the Toho Brass gave as their answer. And basically, this meant that if the movie was a big hit, great. If it wasn't, Toho Azo took all the blame. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, yes, that's what this movie was made. And of course, Submersion of Japan was not just a big hit. It was a gargantuan hit. And I would argue is why Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla got the upped budget. Yeah, because ju- yeah, just to put this into perspective for everybody, the Godzilla movie that came out this year was Godzilla versus Megalon. I think we can very easily see where the money and the effort went. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I mean, I'm friends with Jet Jaguar here on the island. So is Jimmy. We love Jet Jaguar. But again, priorities. <laughs> Wait, it, this was kind of a blessing and a curse for Godzilla in a way, because what this movie showed is that Godzilla wasn't their moneymaker anymore. Nope. No, Godzilla was not their bread and butter anymore. It was these disaster movies because you had Conflagration that came out in the 70s. You had Deathquake in 1980 that came out. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of these disaster movies that came out. Virus, a tremendous failure of a movie, but that was another Komatsu adaptation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, disaster movies in general were just huge. They were popular in American cinemas as well. Yes, you had they were stuff very like uh, Airport and The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno. Yeah, I, I was actually going to to say that that like out of all like the natural disaster movies like earthquake mm-hmm. uh, meteor even the modern ones such as the day after tomorrow 2012 10.3 mm-hmm. um dante's inferno volcano i will gladly say that this is my favorite natural disaster movie oh it, it's a tremendous one i think this is a tremendous movie and i mean that in every meaning of that statement for people who are kind of going into this movie, the closest movie that I can really compare this to in terms of things that your audience might know is Shin Godzilla. Yes, uh, there are a lot of shades of submersion of Japan in Shin Godzilla. In fact, I would dare say, especially early on in the movie, those initial stages when the characters are diving down into the trench and and doing their initial investigations, it really feels like if this movie swerved a little bit to the left, it could be a kaiju movie. Yes. That first probably half an hour, 45 minutes or so of this movie is almost like a kaiju movie without a kaiju. Yes, it totally does. And to me, that is why I hold this movie above others, is that it really doesn't get bogged down in the melodrama of the people as much as it gets bogged down in the melodrama of the situation. And this is one of the things that I I truly adore about this movie, is that there is no antagonist in the movie. The antagonist is the sinking of Japan. Yeah. When I was in college, I had a professor, English professor, writing professor, who would talk about what he called the nine basic plots. He said, Mm -hmm. all stories fall under this. And one of them was character versus environment. That was a big one. So the example that I think he would give for that would be something like Robinson Crusoe, where that's someone who's shipwrecked on an island and has to deal with the elements. This is very much the same thing. This is literally the setting is sinking. You can't stay. It will kill you. It's Titanic, but Titanic's a country. Yes. Um, (laughs) It is just one of those movies. But again, to really mention just how big of a hit this was. As a part of the deal with Komatsu, Toho was commissioned to make a series alongside with it, a 26-episode series. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Komatsu did not like the series. No. I don't know how much he didn't like it, but apparently he didn't like it. (laughs) I would really love to see this. I've only seen the first episode. Oh, really? Yes. I'll have to track it down and add it to the vault. 
yes, I really want to check it out because apparently it shared much of the same cast and it also had a huge budget. Mm -hmm. But that budget, unfortunately, mainly went to the cast, not Mm. the special effects. Mm. Interesting. And that really angered a lot of the special effects crew, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. And I know some also some trivia with that is that the first episode and the last two episodes were directed by Jun Fukuda of Godzilla fame. Really? Hmm. Yes, uh, May Hama is apparently in it. She was one of the big guest stars that appear in it. Oh, oh yeah, I think um, I, I remember. Uh, I remember reading that. Speaking of the cast for this movie, fun fact: Tadakura, Doctor Tadakuro, yeah. Tadakuro. Ah. Uh, yeah, I need to work on my Japanese Kobayashi? a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Keiji Kobayashi, is that his name or something similar to that? Uh, I believe so. If we're both wrong, Jimmy will correct us in his blog, right. but his follow-up <laughs> blog. But he also played the Prime Minister in Return of Godzilla. Yeah, it's Keiju Kobayashi. There you go. I always also think that he is Kobayashi in Godzilla Raids again, and I'm constantly proved wrong every time <laughs> I think that. Um, yeah, but yeah, that, that's, total, that, that's totally fine. But I read an essay by a guy named uh, Thomas Schnellbacher. You can't get more German sounding than that, I have to say. (laughs) It's called Has the Empire Sunk Yet? And I also used this essay for research when I worked on my Atragon episode. But he had a couple of lines in there that I thought really described. It was he was speaking more of about the novel, but it certainly is descriptive of the movie as well. He wrote, quote, he permits his characters, he being Komatsu, to bid a fond farewell to the country they love and to take their culture with them. Komatsu's geodynamics also differ from Abe's. He's talking about some other authors here. This time, only Japan goes under. Moreover, it does so in the space of only two years, the result of an acceleration of convection movements in the mantle of the Earth, ending with the island sliding into the fold of the Japan Trench at the bottom of the Pacific. Which that kind of goes into one of my minor gripes with the movie. It's almost very Japanese in its presentation that it focuses solely on Japan. And part of me is like, no, you realize that if suddenly Japan sank, Korea would be screwed. Basically, the entire east coast of northern Asia would be screwed. Yeah. And the west coast of the United States would be screwed. Well, then you'll be happy to know because I know you haven't watched the... terribly edited U.S. version that was made by Roger Corman and the New World Pictures, which all of the Godzilla fans listening to this, you should have a reason to not like that studio because they botched up Godzilla in 1985. But uh, two years later, they uh, took a two two hour and 20 minute movie and cut it down to about 80 minutes. So it's hyper truncated, but they do add a few new scenes. They added their new star, Lorne Green, who's Mm -hmm. in the movie for probably about five minutes, but they build him as the real star. And in several of his scenes, he mentions that this is not just a concern for Japan, but for the rest of the world and the United States, because what we're seeing here could happen elsewhere. So I guess it's got one little, it it fixed one little gripe for you. Yeah, while it couldn't just happen everywhere, it would be happening everywhere when when Japan is sinking. No, that was like one of my little gripes about the science Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. Like at the ending where you see Japan is gone, which is a great shot. It's a haunting, haunting shot. Most definitely. But it shows like Korea is completely normal. You know, that entire coast is normal. I'm like, that's probably, no, 
no, no, probably no. underwater. Yeah, but the the other thing that Schnellbacher brought up in his essay was that, and I won't go into all the details because you know we do have a time frame that we need to keep here. But he said that the events of the novel, and again, I would extend those to the film adaptation because I will have to say this is actually as a film adaptation. Having read the English language translation of the novel, it's actually pretty effective as an adaptation. He said the the that's what I've heard. Yeah, the events can be broken down into three different levels. One is the physical, so it's the actual geological processes that are going on, so the physical sinking of Japan. Social, so it's the reaction of the Japanese political and other institutions to this crisis. More importantly, quote, what might happen to the Japanese after Japan no longer exists, i.e. what options the Japanese government might have for evacuating 100 million Japanese within the geopolitical givens of the time, as Schnellbacher put it. But the one that is honestly probably the most important, and I think for Schnellbacher was the most important one as well, which is the affective level, which is what this does, to put it succinctly, what it does to the characters and how it impacts the individual characters, which is one of the things that I think if you're going to have a good disaster movie, you have to take this. I mean, this is such a big, grandiose event. It's such a crazy idea that this massive island nation would just disappear into the ocean inside of a year. Yes. So it zeroes in on our cast of characters and what it does to their lives. So Tarakoro is obsessed with figuring out what's actually happening. And we see it takes a toll on his health and it just he's a mess by the end of this movie. Yeah. Well, just about all of them are messes by the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, Onondera, I mean, he's almost completely out of it by the end of the movie. You see, he gets hurt quite a bit and mm-hmm. everything like that because he's all this energy. But one of my favorite moments in the film is when that D2 station gets shut officially. No, no, no. It doesn't officially get shut down, but they have to move. Mm-hmm. And Mimura, who is doesn't really have much of a character in this movie, but he's the actor that plays him is, has really good facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Mura is just looking out the window of the helicopter as he sees everything crumbling apart around him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you just see the toll everything has taken on him mm-hmm. in that moment without any dialogue saying, oh, I'm so tired and I'm so weak. This movie, surprisingly for a Japanese movie, is amazing at showing, not telling. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> most there's, there's really there's really i think there's only like a couple moments in this where it gets into the heads of the characters where they have a um internal monologue i've never been a fan of those mm-hmm. that i really wish that they just left it silent yeah i can see and, where you're coming from with that it's also interesting to know because this was directed by not necessarily a name that a lot of my listeners if they're primarily focused on the kaiju movies it's not a shiro honda or jun fukuda or anybody like that it's a guy named shiro moritani so yeah it's a different I've, name. Never, I've never heard of him here's what i know about him i know that he also directed the vastly successful mount hokata movie which mm-hmm. was based on a true story and a movie that i desperately want to see about people freezing to death on a mountain <laughs> but that movie was apparently a, also a gargantuan success. That's the movie he made after this one. Mm. And he strikes me as a director the company goes to who isn't really overly artistic, but is competent enough to handle a high budget, large scale movie. He kind of reminds me of, let's say, Nicholas Ray or Mervyn Leroy mm. when they were making their large scale biblical epics in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. They are competent enough. They do have an artistic voice, but they're not like a Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. That's what he strikes me as. This is the only movie by his that I've seen. 
Yeah, I think he's well-suited for something like this because the novel is very much a procedural. It's not unartistic, but it's very much a hard science fiction book. and That's what I've heard. Yeah, Yeah. and having him helm a movie that is also largely procedural and hard sci-fi is something that you would probably want to have. But he's certainly competent enough to compose shots and sequences that in their simplicity, in their directness, and even the their subtlety, as you pointed out earlier, can be quite haunting. Oh, the cinematography in this movie is I don't I forgot the name of the guy who did it, but phenomenal work. Phenomenal camera work in this movie on the whole. And I got to applaud the submarine sequences at the beginning of the movie because those are some of the most claustrophobic sequences ever. I mean, uh, those, those sequences are fantastic. It's also some of the best submarine sequences I've seen in a Japanese film. I was shocked when we watched it today. Mm-hmm. I was shocked how good they were. I mean, it's oh, they're you, phenomenal. You, they you work, forget. Yeah that you're watching a Japanese film. I mean, I don't mean this insultingly, but you forget that you're watching a Japanese film and not a Hollywood production. It's that good. And that really goes into the effects of this movie. I mean, I will go down and say, I believe full-heartedly that this is Teruyoshi Nakano's best work. Oh, there are reasons why the disaster sequences in this film were recycled by Toho as stock footage for years. (laughs) Yeah, even in the 80s. Some stock footage in this is in Godzilla 84. I know, um, yeah. That and, weirdly enough, Prophecies of Nostradamus, but that's a episode for another day. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's an interesting movie. Yes, um, most definitely. And, but, uh, I would argue that his best Godzilla movie actually came out in 74 at around the same time. So uh, Godzilla uh, versus Mechagodzilla. Yep. Yep. So and, uh, Nakano, I've said this before on the show. I think Nakano is kind of a Japanese Michael Bay. If he was a special effects guy, he likes setting oh, things on character. fire. <laughs> Yes, his, he loves blowing things up. Yeah, like Eiji Tsuburaya, I believe his best thing was ships. I think he really nailed making ships and aircraft and things like that. Sadamasa Arakawa, his first protege, I thought he he had the best wire works. You know, he did Son of Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters, all those movies, and the wire works are just phenomenal. Teruyoshi Nakano's was explosions. Mm-hmm. He was the expert at blowing things up and blowing them up spectacularly. Mm-hmm. And this movie is is no exception. I mean, it's literally the middle of the movie when Tokyo gets hit with a massive earthquake. Yeah. It, uh, I don't understand. Roger Ebert called it tape-covered cardboard boxes getting destroyed. <sighs> I don't think he watched the movie. I don't think he did either. I, he's uh, Ebert always struck me as being weirdly prejudiced toward... Japanese, well, not Japanese films, prejudice toward Tokusatsu. Yes, but the effects, I think these are better than most of the Hollywood disaster movies that were being made around this time. Like, I, I see the special effects in Earthquake, and I'm like, no, this is leaps and bounds better than oh, yeah, that. Certainly yeah. more dynamic. And the thing that is really striking, that really, that I think is the greatest strength of the disaster sequences in this, is they are given such tremendous weight. They do not shy away from showing the casualties and not only just, you know, seeing a flood of water coming in and washing people away. So, you know, that those people are probably drowning. They, they don't stop there. They show you up close and personal in a few scenes, what this is doing to these people. The guy who's pinned screaming for help with the two cars, he's pinned between two cars Yeah, and then the glass shattering. Oh, 
Yeah, the, the, the one people. that gets to me is the woman who has a giant shard of glass in her eye. Yes, and it's in just, her oh, eye. Yes. my gosh. It does. And, and I love the fact that this movie doesn't shy away from it because you look at the Hollywood movies, most of the Hollywood movies, not all, but most of them, they do shy away from showing the carnage of what this sort of disaster would cause. This movie pulls no stops. And on top of that, what's great is that they're in typical Japanese form. This movie does not have a single protagonist. It has a series of protagonists. Mm -hmm, mm. That was and, uh, that was very common, actually, with a lot of disaster movies. They tended to be ensemble pieces. The yes, even something you, that is you're absolutely right. Yeah, even something that is dramatically smaller in scope by comparison to this, the Poseidon Adventure. That's an ensemble. So that's a fun movie. Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah, but, that's but, actually but, like, one of the like, rare times I will say the movie's better than the novel because I've read the novel and the novel is so I've heard, so I've heard. Yeah, um, but anyway, but, but like during the <laughs> during the, the disaster sequence where you see those people that get burned alive at the very end. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, and there's children in there, and yeah. you you are absolutely haunted by these images. And I love the helicopter pilot who's like, "We're returning to base to get more of those flame retardants," and he just gets, "No, we're ceasing operations. We're out." Yeah. And he just like looks out the window and you just see the reflection of the flames. And I'm like, you feel that mm -hmm. you genuinely feel that mm -hmm. and, the, there's and so much weight in all of this. There's this sense of impending doom. So much of it. The, Osaka. Yeah. Because you have that sequence, which is one of my gripes with the. It's slightly a complaint with the movie, but Onondera is drunk and walking through the city. And he mm -hmm. bumps into his love interest. Uh, right. Reiko. Reiko. Yeah. Reiko. And I just remember later in the movie, and this movie is brilliant. At, I loved how they did this. <laughs> They're shooting a film out of a helicopter and they hear over the radio. Are you over Osaka? And the guy says, this is Osaka. Yeah. And all you see is just barely the top of Osaka Castle sticking out of the water. Yeah. And not many scenes earlier, we were with Onondera walking through the streets. Mm hmm. And it was a bustling metropolis. Yeah. And there's that impending doom throughout the entirety of the film, particularly mm -hmm. the second half of the film, where it really yeah. sets in and people are like, no, this is going to happen. Yeah. But there's so many things that are definite foreshadowing. There's that helicopter sequence with those guys looking out over Tokyo and they're mm -hmm. marveling at it. And they're, they're talking about all the good things and the bad, interestingly, that are going on there. And they're talking about all the things that are going on in the city. And then one guy says like, oh, you're acting like we're never going to see it again. Definite foreshadowing there. And yeah, I just think it's, yeah, I, but I just yeah. think it's interesting that they're talking about all these different things, just people going about their lives and the good and the bad that go with it. Well, I, the fact that Onondera is not close to his family at all, his mother's dying. Yeah. You know, things, um, things and, like that. Uh, you know, he, uh, we'll tell us, talk a little bit about Reiko. He has this girlfriend. He's never met her before. I think she's the daughter of a guy that he knows, and he's just trying to marry his daughter off, and she's like, you're a good well, match. In, yeah, so. in the book, from what I understand, it was an arranged marriage. In the movie, mm -hmm. not so much. Yeah, that is one of the big differences. There are two women in yeah, the, in is, the novel. Yeah, Reiko and Mako. The niece for Watari is kind of Mako, but not really from the novel. And Reiko in the novel is supposed to be kind of bland, but she comes from a good family and they at least have a few things in common. But Onondera, and, uh, but, uh, I believe uh, the, in the scene, book, yeah, the scene he falls for Mako. Right? Yeah. Or yeah, he, she, has he more ends of up marrying Mako. Mako. Yeah. And like, that's the big difference I remember is, is I'm like, okay, so the movie ends with them on trains on opposite sides of the world, mm -hmm. Onondera and Reiko. And it's very optimistic. Mm -hmm. because it's like they might find each other there's we don't know there's a future still 
Mm -hmm. The book ends, I would argue optimistically as well, but in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because on that, if he wakes up next to Mako and you realize that he's married Mako and Raiko is just out there, that's saying something on Japan moving forward anyways, I, I yeah. think. Yeah, that, that was the that, that was the idea. And the, uh, the, but actually, Reiko actually dies in the novel. So the scene where... Actually die in the novel. Yeah, okay. well, when Mount Fuji erupts, she actually, in the novel, she actually died. So, ah, okay, mm -hmm. okay. So that's why he ended up going with Mako. And the idea being with Mako, he's marrying her because she's very willing to get married and have children and continue the Japanese lineage, so to speak. Toward the end, after they've gotten married, Mako tells the story about Tanaba, who was a woman who survives a flood and then gives birth to a son who goes on to start a new tribe. And she finds comfort in it, which speaks to the larger theme of this movie. You talked about how this is a very, very Japanese film. And I think that was part of the reason why Tidal Wave got cut down so much as it did. I do too. There's so much Japanese-ness in it. It's not unlike when the novel was translated, it was abridged quite a bit. But the thing is, having watched Tidal Wave, I can tell you the fact that they chopped it down to 80 minutes, you really start to realize that that extra hour of footage really is what gives weight to what is going on because everything just happens. And, you know, it just keeps going and going and going and it just, nothing well, really has to... any weight. I should say this to the listeners that if you haven't seen this, I greatly benefited with this movie because I know Japanese history. I've been researching it forever and their culture. Knowing that helped my enjoyment of the movie. I'm not going to lie. A guy going into this who's just Joe Schmo in the street and who's just kind of maybe getting into foreign movies, you know, mm -hmm. might have a harder time with this movie just because of how Japanese a lot of it is. The yeah. little details are very Japanese. And I remember, again, Shin Godzilla had this as well, where a lot of people weren't getting a lot of these little details. And I was lucky that I was. And that really did help my enjoyment of the movie. So I do have to say people who want to see this movie who haven't, be prepared. You might want to do some research. Yeah. What you're talking about is actually one of the mission statements of my podcast is helping to bridge that gap for modern foreign audiences, particularly mm -hmm. with Japanese films. And this is as good a time as any to actually talk about that a little bit because... There's one very large theme in this, which is that the movie is exploring Japanese national identity, the Japanese national spirit, if you will. The novel does the same thing. In fact, Komatsu wrote in the preface to the 1995 edition of this novel, he wrote, quote, I wanted us to think a little bit about the significance of our country, that being Japan, whether things went as they should with pre-war and with post-war Japan. Well, I have a quote similar to that from a 2000 edition of G-Fan, mm -hmm. which I think goes directly into Submersion of Japan, and it goes into the themes of it specifically. It's, he says, until the 15th of August 1945, when the Showa Emperor officially declared the end of the war to the Japanese nation, all the Japanese, especially a teenager like me, believed in government slogans such as honorable death for all honorable Japanese nation or decisive battle is when Americans land on mainland Japan. We all made our minds for the coming death. However, once the war was over, Japan got over the consequence of death so easily. And by the 1960s, people were happy about the post-war economical growth of the country. 
when I saw the circumstances, I wanted to reconsider the meaning of what Japan is and what the Japanese are. That is why I wrote Japan Sinks. Oh, wow. That's good. That's and really I good. think that encapsulates the book. Oh, yeah. In a paragraph. Oh, yeah. Theme, theme wise, that mm -hmm. encapsulates the book. Mm -hmm. I actually have a little quotation here from Atari. Now, he doesn't say anything quite like this in the movie, but this sentiment is certainly expressed by him. Because you got to understand, Watari is a hundred year old man, and they even say he's seen three different eras of Japanese history. He's seen the Meiji, the Taisho, which was the early 20th century, and then what was then currently the Showa era. Showa. Yeah, it was yeah. still Showa. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he said in the novel, if we could lose this thing called Japan altogether, if one could drop the Japan in Japanese and just be human, then there would be no problem. But that doesn't work. Our culture and language are historical karma. If everything else disappeared completely along with the land of Japan, our nation, our race, our culture and history, then that would be fine. But the Japanese are still a vital young race. They're full of energy and they still haven't fulfilled their karma to live. I kind of remember that in the movie. Yeah, um, that was Tadakura talked that. about that, about how yes. the, he was comparing yeah. Japan to being like a child where they could go out into the world and they could do things, but then they would get hurt. Well, but, and they always had the homeland to come back to like it was their mother and to, well, you know, to uh, kinda, know, put a Band-Aid on their scraped that, knee and then they would go back out again. But now they won't have that. Well, yeah, that mentality is very true, by the way, in 1970s Japan, because if you look at World War II changed everything, ladies and gentlemen. No, um, yeah. <laughs> but if you look at post-World War II Japan versus pre-World War II Japan, completely different countries. Mm -hmm. Totally different countries. And in many ways, he's right. That sentimentality that Japan is very young. Japan is very young. That modernized what they knew at the time Japan is extremely young. And I understand what he means by that. But I also know that that sort of debate goes a little bit further than that. Because if you look at Japan during World War II, before that, I should say, all the way back into the Russo-Japan War in the early 1900s, they were constantly trying to expand their culture, their language, their name structure, their hierarchy. They constantly thought that they were the master race, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a huge chunk of what they were doing. I mean, look what they were doing in China and Korea, especially, especially Korea. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, by the 70s, they had almost held on to those beliefs so much that now they are the outsider. Mm-hmm that Japan had become not isolationist. That's not completely the wrong word, but a lot of what they do is just within the confines of their own Island. Mm -hmm. And that plays into this. Mm -hmm. How are people going to integrate with the rest of the world, which goes into the, the three scenarios for the future yes. of the Japanese people. Yes. It was going to be people who would go off and assimilate into other yeah, countries. I, I have them written down. Yeah, People who would settle somewhere and essentially restart the Japanese nation and people who would stay and go down with the homeland. Yeah. Well, to, to quote the third one, the third one is the most Japanese out of them all. Mm -hmm. The third one is those who remain behind will die on the Island and do nothing but accept their fate. Yeah. And we do have several characters who do that. Absolutely. Including Watari. <sighs> it's a deep movie. It's, it really is a, a movie to mm. digest because I know, and it saddens me that my old review of this movie 
is still one of the first things that pops up for Submersion of Japan when you go and search up for it on YouTube. Yeah. That really upsets me because it's not an accurate depiction of the movie. No. Uh, I, I haven't watched it yet, but uh, I believe you. <laughs> when I did the review, I did like it, you know, but I had a lot more issues with it than I do now. Now that I've gotten older and I've matured and I've done more of the research and I've read more of the history, this movie is so much more than just a regular disaster movie. In fact, I would even go as far as saying if the original Godzilla was a disaster movie, like a natural disaster movie, this would be it. It's very similar in that sort of presentation that things, there's themes to everything. Everything sort of happens for a reason in the movie to press a theme. Komatsu was really obsessed with this, and he died not long after the 2011 tsunami. Mm -hmm. And he, one of his last quotes was, I had thought I wouldn't mind dying any day, but now I'm feeling like living a little bit longer and seeing how Japan will go on hereafter. Yeah. So he was obsessed with this idea. This idea, I don't know what it was, if it was negative or positive in his light, like experimenting with this idea, but it's a theme in all of his stuff. Mm -hmm. And specifically what he's addressing in this story is, is national identity tied to the land? Does the Japanese mm -hmm. nation cease to exist if the land of Japan is gone? There's a lot of that in this movie because there's a lot of that, particularly Watari's little mansion there mm -hmm. that he has. It's gorgeous. Even when Japan is, you know, craps hitting the fan, mm -hmm. you know, to be PG, his home is still beautiful. And like, I also remember, I believe it's his first scene. He mentions the birds aren't here anymore. Mm -hmm. The swallows. Yes. And, and it doesn't feel like home anymore and, and mm -hmm. things like that. So, yeah, it, it's... It's full of stuff like that. Yeah. And, the, and, and stuff like that, I just love. Yeah. To know the, and you'll be interested to know. And this, I'm surprised this didn't get brought up in the movie, but Japan is mythologized to a certain extent in the novel. The, the uh, prologue to the novel is actually called The Death of the Dragon. And oh, yes. it yeah. compares Japan to a dragon, but now the dragon is dying. It's this twisted body with a thrashing tail. And. So Japan is being presented as this suffering yet destructive beast that is worthy of pity and pathos. It's such an interesting, multi-layered metaphor, if you right. really want to stop and think about and, it. And, and I personally love this more than allegory. I personally, like whenever somebody does an allegorical film, I will take themes like this over an allegory any day. Oh, yeah. And I, I did an entire podcast about this. Mm -hmm. And I adore how this movie doesn't answer any of them. It asks a crap ton of questions, what's going to happen? And it kind of foreshadows that this is probably what's going to happen, but it never outright says, this is the answer, this is what's going to happen. And I think if you had a Hollywood movie, you would get an answer. Oh yeah, most definitely. We're a little bit crunched for time, but I will say, you know, I just want to bring this up briefly, because this does tie in to the movie itself, the book, and all the themes that we're talking about, which is the Kanto earthquake from 1923. They even reference it in the film. And they're comparing everything that's going on. In fact, one of the first places to get hit by all the disasters in those spectacular special effects tokusatsu sequences is Kanto. And that was a massive earthquake that happened, like I said, in 1923. And it was honestly the biggest disaster to hit Japan in, well, really its entire history up to that point. And I think it still is one of the biggest ones. Uh, are you familiar with that at all? You know, being the history buff? Uh, surprisingly, no. I'm not really 
All I know is what happened after it. Some of the reasons like it led to the failed coup d'etat. Yes. You know, that that failed that uprising that affected Ishiro Honda's career. Mm-hmm. It led to a lot of things. I'm kind of obsessed with things leading into other things. And it's partially why a lot of Koreans hate Japan because mm-hmm. they were blamed. You know, Japan really Japan went on an, an absolute massive Korean slaughter because a part of them thought that they were at fault for a lot of the stuff that was happening and, and so on and so forth. Mm, Very there were people wrong. in power who took advantage of the situation. Yes. And yes. it really helped to solidify, honestly, for lack of a better term, the fascist government that was in charge it wasn't, of the yeah, country I by I World War really, II. I can't really call the Imperial Japan in World War II, to, or towards World War II, them fascist, but it's certainly militaristic. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, certainly militaristic. And this led to that. I have to admit, it's one of the, it's a funny little moment. I don't think it's meant to be funny, but it kind of made me chuckle just because of the irony of it. The old man who goes, don't let a fire happen, and then they get killed by water. Yeah, well, that might have been thinking back to the Kanto earthquake, because one of the things that would happen in there is they would have literal pillars of fire that would be forming up, because that was really... The earthquake, it happened September 1st, 1923, which yep. is now Earthquake Preparedness Day in Japan. And yep. it happened at 11.58 a.m. It only lasted about 14 seconds. But the biggest thing that happened was... Needed. Yeah, but the biggest thing that started happening was there were all the fires. It caused gobs and gobs of fires, and they would even have these freak pillars that I said that would form. So they were these tornadoes of flame, and they called them dragon twists, which I think definitely plays into the sort of imagery that we're seeing in this movie with all the, oh, like, we're talking about the fire and all of that, and how, honestly, it was the fires that caused far more devastation than you know, really the earthquake itself. Yeah, well, that's a lot of it, like the earthquake in 2011. I mean, that's what I have to compare it to, because I remember watching that live. That was one of those moments I'll never forget is watching it live when the earthquake didn't really do much. The tsunami did. And it's the aftermath of everything. And and the movie plays that up too. the aftermath does a lot of the destruction in Tokyo. It's the fires. It does a lot. And just to put this into perspective, this was a 7.9, so almost a 8.0 magnitude earthquake. And it was centered just about 40 miles south-southwest of Tokyo. And it released energy that was equivalent to 400 Hiroshima-sized bombs. It was absolutely insane. And then you looked up the death toll numbers there, Adam. So uh, what did you have there? This is according to the Smithsonian. The death toll would be about 140,000, including 44,000 who had sought refuge near Tokyo's Sumida River in the first few hours. And they were all burned to death by those dragon pillars that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So there's definitely scenes like that in this movie. There's even a scene, there's a sequence where people are trying to, they were trying to get into the, I believe it was the Imperial Palace and they were barricading them out and letting them in. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that was really devastating, I mean, the disaster's bad enough as it was, but then there was the aftermath from it where people were looting and rioting and. Which is what would happen. And I'm yeah. glad this movie brings it up. And I'll go over this quickly. I was listening to a, a podcast about this, and somebody was mentioning how horrible the Australian prime minister is in this yeah. movie. And I don't think he was horrible. I really don't. I think he was being extremely realistic because what he says isn't wrong. And I love the fact that the movie brings that up, mm-hmm. that you know, if we bring 5 million Japanese people here, all they're going to do is suck up our resources and then want to build a, a nation of their own. I know. It's not it's- wrong. And I I love how the movie brings that up. 
And I, yeah. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm just saying that is something that would be brought up and talked about. Yeah, because it's a very complicated issue. It is. It's extremely complicated. I mean, uh, the, the Australian prime minister even says, yeah, we have 70% of our land is unoccupied, but that's because it's all desert. Right. <laughs> you it, know, it's played it's, by Andrew Hughes, by the way. Um, oh, okay. The Australian prime minister is played by Andrew Hughes, who plays, I, I believe his name is, it's either Dr. Otani, but he plays one of the doctors in Destroy All Monsters. Ah, okay. Okay. Giving a slightly better performance this time around. <laughs> the English is good in this movie. Yeah, actually, it is surprisingly good. <laughs> Hilariously, even the English parts get dubbed over in Tidal Wave. That's the, the Australian prime minister in particular is given a uh, <laughs> kind oh. of a, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, a crocodile Dundee sort of accent. Oh, so no, just, uh, which is so sad because Andrew Hughes is actually Australian from what I yeah. read. So his accent yeah. was real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no, it was ridiculous. And there was uh, over 100,000 refugees that were going, you know, in certain places. It was, it is absolutely insane. There's a lot that I could dedicate a whole podcast just to talking about the Kanto earthquake. It's long and involved and there's so much stuff. This is why I include a list of sources in the show notes for every episode. Yeah, <laughs> And as we talked about, you know, it was exploited by the elites in the government at the time. And you know, they were talking about, how this all came about because Japan had lost its way culturally and it was no longer practicing those Meiji era values of sacrifice and loyalty and selflessness and frugality, obedience, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, resulting in something like 6,000 Koreans being butchered. Yeah, because not unlike what Hitler did with the Jews in World War II, they were blamed by a lot of people for what was going exactly. on, even though it made yep. no sense. And there was a cultural critic and philosopher named Fukasaku Yasubumi, who said, and I, this was something I saw in a couple of different sources, he said, God cracked down a great hammer. Yeah, I'm reading that right now. Yeah, yeah. on the God Japanese people. A great hammer. That's one hell of a quote. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I, I've and got to I, something. Holy crap. Yeah. So like I said, it's a whole to do. And I think there is definitely a spirit of that. It's in the novel and it's definitely in this movie. I think you see it, especially with the prime minister, prime minister Yamamoto. That's a very interesting choice of name right there. Yes. And at first I thought they called him Yamamoto specifically calling back. They to do Admiral in tidal wave. Yeah. To Admiral Yamamoto. But apparently that's not true at all. I guess apparently the prime minister after this earthquake, the Kanto earthquake, was named Yamamoto. Mm, very interesting. But I think he's wrestling with a lot of that. They don't really bring religion into this, but no. you know, I, I do think it's at least implicit that there's this huge burden placed upon him as the leader of Japan to figure out what needs to be done. And, and they even make it personal about doing because it. his wife dies. Yeah. So, I, I only caught that. I only caught that on this viewing. Oh, wow. But I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, why didn't I see that before? And that yeah. to me, that just added so much more weight to his performance. Oh, most definitely. Tamba, the actor, does a great job. He's great in everything. What can I say? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, like I've said, Adam and I could go on forever about this movie. It is yep. so incredibly good. If you can track it down, I highly recommend you do it. You know, if you, Especially if you can get it on Blu-ray because it's gorgeous on Blu-ray. Blu yes, the Blu-ray is gorgeous gorgeous 
Yeah, which is more than I can say for the copy of Tidal Wave that I found. If people complained about Godzilla 2014 on Blu-ray being too dark, try watching Tidal Wave. I can barely tell what's going on. And most of the footage I had already seen in Blu-ray resolution before. That was the only reason I knew what was going on half the time, especially during the all the night or dark sequences. You can barely mm-hmm. see what's going on. It was terrible. It's like somebody ripped it from a VHS that had been collecting dust for about did 40 the, years. Did the yeah. American cut keep that shot of Onondera trying to find Raiko and you see the setting yes. sun in the distant in the smoke? Yes. I love that shot. It's it probably is my favorite yeah. shot in the movie. Yeah, it's an incredible shot. Absolutely yeah. incredible shot. Which, talking about the ending of this movie, is uh, I think is as good a place as any to finish out our conversation. Thank you once again for stopping by, Adam. I, yeah. You need to remember your Adam Noise. Adam Noyes. Yeah, no, no, yes is how everyone pronounces it. That's perfectly fine. I, uh, I don't get offended by stuff like that. Pronounced noise. Yeah, I mucked that up in all those episodes. See, this is why it's interesting for me. I should have brought this up a little bit sooner. This is a first for me on this show. I have now brought on somebody who has been cited as a source in my research on this podcast because well, I've I used am- several of your videos. <laughs> I am honored. All I can say is I love your panel where you did the Shinichi Sekizawa and Takashi Kimura thing. From oh, Shinichi thank Seth. you very much. I, the, I got to give a shout out to Danny DeMana for helping to put that yeah, together. Very, we very glad that those two writers are starting to get some academic attention finally. They should. They most they definitely should. should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, what do you got there, Jimmy? Oh, great. Just what I need. More press releases from Miss Perkins from the board. All right, what do we got this time? To all our wonderful employees and volunteers who live and thrive here on our beautiful monster island. In an effort to continue to slow the spread of COVID-19, we promise that in 2021, we will take serious steps to enact policies and procedures that will ensure the safety of all who visit and live on the island. With that sentiment in mind, we are pleased to announce that due to a very generous donation by someone who wishes to remain anonymous, we will be installing brand new Decon 19 stations at all major entrances to attractions and facilities here on the island. We are starting with 20 units, and by the time of March, we expect to have more than 100 Decon 19 stations positioned at various access points. You should have, in your daily briefing, a detailed list of procedures that must be followed every time you enter or leave your offices. The first five units will be installed on Thursday, January 21st, and by the end of the week, we should have all 20 units in position. If your building is on the list to receive a Decon 19 unit, please be patient and allow for at least an extra 15 minutes for decontamination before entering or exiting the building. From all of us here at the Mibob, we would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to everyone helping to ensure the safety of others during these unprecedented times. As always, thank you for helping us all see a better way forward. Signed, the Monster Island Board of Directors. Well, I guess things seem to be relatively in order here. Oh, yippee skippy. Just what me to, but come on. We have what two working vaccines for this thing now, and we're going to get even more stringent about this. Great. This is going to go over well. And by that, I mean, not well. <sighs> okay. We'll just deal with it. It'll give you something to do while you're here. Yes. I think my work here has just begun. 
Yeah, peace, Skippy. All right, now it's time to move on to a very, very important segment on this show, the Patreon shoutouts. Go show Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton, Danny Damana, Chris Cook, Eli Harris, Bex from Redeemed Otaku. Thank you once again, patrons, for all of your generosity. I want to remind everyone out there that if you too would like to join, I like to call it MIFV Max and start supporting us with as little as $3 a month, you can get perks like this and many more like bonus blooper audio and behind-the-scenes blogs and all kinds of other perks. Like I said, just starting at $3 a month. So head over to Patreon and check all of that out. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks for putting up with that, Adam. I really appreciate it. (laughs) That's no problem. Uh, Trust me, I've been in worse situations on both ends of this of that stuff. So it's 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 what I do for a living. So (laughs) obviously, obviously. But now we come to the point where I mention what our next episodes are going to be. The next episode. Not necessarily looking forward to it, but we will be continuing the year of Gamera. And we'll be getting to the second movie in the Gamera franchise, Gamera versus Barugan from 1966. I will be joined by my friends Joe and Joy Metter as what happened with the first episode of this series. They will get to watch the MST3K episode of this film while I have to watch it straight. And then we will compare notes. So that should be interesting, hopefully. And then next month, our next extended mini analysis, as I like to call it, will be, we hinted at it a little bit while we were talking, Adam, it will be The Prophecies of Nostradamus, which was released just a year after this, 1974. Yeah. It's also a disaster movie, but a very different kind of disaster movie. A very different kind of disaster movie. (laughs) Oh, man. It's also going to be the second movie that I have talked about on the show that was banned. <laughs> yes. We're getting into some more banned movies. The other one was half human. So uh, it's uh, going to be interesting. I had to look long and hard to find a copy to include in the film vault here on the island. Let me tell you, it was not easy. I remember when I got my hands on that movie in proper scope and subtitled. I screamed like a little girl. Oh, (laughs) I have no doubt. But yeah, it's a trip to say the least. It's a a trip. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But now we come to yet another very important segment. No episode of the Monster Island Film Vault would be complete without some shameless self-promotion. So take it away, Adam. Where can everyone find your stuff and keep track of you? Well, if you want to find me on YouTube, because I do upload everything to YouTube, all you have to do is search AN Productions. That's Alpha Nancy Productions. And then you can also find my website. My website literally has everything we do, even stuff that's outside of YouTube, at www.adamnproductions.com. That's where you'll find everything and all up-to-date information on what we're doing, along with all of our other social media. You'll find it there. Okay. Just out of curiosity, what's your current project right now that you want everyone to know about? 
podcast wise or no, anything, anything. No, we've, we're just working on, let's just say we're making a movie and we're excited to announce it soon. Ooh, I'll have to keep track of the YouTube channel to see how that goes. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're super excited about a big undertaking. Yes, yes, yes. And I just want to take this moment really quick. You'll hear a lot of this in the credits, but I do want to mention we would love to hear from any of you listeners. Tell us what you think of Submersion of Japan or any other movie that we've covered here on the Film Vault. I know more people are starting to discover the podcast and they're probably going back through the back catalog and listening to old episodes. I don't care how old the episodes are. Tell us what you think of them and your feedback could be read on a future episode of the show. If you'd like to do that, you can email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com or feel free to message us on our various social medias. Sure, Jimmy. And while you're at it, follow my intrepid producer on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. See, there you go. Fulfilled those contractual obligations. I hope you're happy. (sighs) Okay, fine. You had to say something because you've been quiet for most of this episode. I get it. Anyway, we're moving on because... (laughs) Adam has some work that he needs to do. (laughs) Yes, this place needs to be updated to deal with these new COVID guidelines. Oh, yippee skippy. All right. In light of that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at MonsterIslaBOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!